Well, would you open your Bibles to the book of Romans, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote probably around the year 57, maybe 58 A.D., uh, a book that has many powerful truths in it. Romans chapter 12, and if you're using one of our pew Bibles, the particular text, verses 3 through 6, will be found on page 948. And let me extend this invitation to you once again. If you do not have a copy of the, uh, your own copy of the Bible, you are welcome to keep one of these copies. So just take it right out of the pew rack and take it home with you. Use it, read it, uh, carry it with you. We have a, a supply. We will replenish uh, what is in the book rack there in the back of the pew. You know, there are significant pieces of history, perhaps even in your pocket, maybe in your purse this morning. I don't know if you've looked at a U.S. coin lately. Uh, if you have, there are all kinds of interesting things on those coins, at least most of them. And one of the things that you will find on some of our currency is the, the motto, E Pluribus Unum. And I've given you two different examples, one from the, the national seal and then another from one of the quarters, a state quarter, on the back of the uh, Utah state quarter, as many other states. You see that little phrase at the very bottom. And the 13-letter motto was suggested in 1776 by Pierre Cimetieri to, to a committee that was responsible for developing the seal of the United States. And the meaning of this phrase originates from the concept that out of the union of the original 13 colonies would emerge a new single union, a single nation. And so that motto has been emblazoned across the scroll of our seal and clenched in the eagle's beak on that great seal of the United States for well over 200 years now. And that little phrase could be translated into the English, out of many, one. Now, as we go deeper into our study of Christ's command that we should love one another as he loved us, we will find that long before that committee settled on this particular phrase to be used as a national motto and to be printed on currency or stamped into coins, the truth actually stood firm in the Holy Bible. In Paul's letter to the Romans, as I said, written almost 2,000 years ago, he writes in Romans 12, verse 3, listen to these words and you follow along as I read. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one. One body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us then use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now we're pausing right there, and I would encourage you to actually read this whole chapter because there's much more that Paul packs into this letter of encouragement for the church at Rome. Now, let's back up a little bit. We don't have an opportunity this morning or time to read Romans chapter 1 through 11. Uh, that's a big chunk of Scripture. If we did, we would notice that one of the things that Paul is doing is actually to explain the gospel and actually making particular points regarding what the gospel does to bring people who are very different one from another. Matt alluded to this uh, in his 
uh, pre-offering uh, scripture reading and, and then the prayer itself. The, the Lord, through the gospel work that he does, takes people who are, are wildly different and brings them together as one. He does that, first of all, by uniting us to himself. And so we often talk about being a born-again Christian means being in personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The words vital and personal are good words to use to describe this union with him. Vital in the sense that it's a living union. We don't see Jesus in this room this morning, but he's present with us spiritually. Uh, it is an eternal union. Once you are brought into union with Jesus Christ, it's a union that can never be broken. Jesus said, all who come to me, I will receive. I will not cast anyone out. And then he goes on to say in the Gospel of John that those that are placed into his care, into his hand, he never loses them. So it's, a, it's an eternal union. And it's personal in the sense that you really are united to Jesus. So vital, eternal, personal, those are the kind of words that describe this union. Now, if you go back to Romans 1, verse 16, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And that simply means that in the chronology of gospel evangelism, the Jews were the first ethnic group to actually hear the gospel, but it wasn't exclusive to them. No, as the gospel witnesses spread throughout the known world, they began reaching, uh, and the term in, that we have in our English Bible is Greek, but it actually it was used in that particular way just to refer to non-Jewish people. So that's why some of your English versions even use the word Gentiles. And that would include most of us. Some of you may actually have Jewish DNA, so you'd be included among the first group, but most of us are likely in the second group. And aren't you glad that the Lord has given his gospel of salvation to everyone? Then you would have come, if you were reading through the first 11 chapters, you'd come to Romans 3, verses 22 to 24, where we read the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. For there's no distinction. That is, there's not one class of people who gets special privilege and others that the Lord kind of says, no, not for you. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But verse 24 says, and all are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, if we stop there for just a moment and think it through, a lot of us don't want to really admit we're as sinful as we are. You want to keep the really bad stuff hidden, don't you? And, and you, don't, you don't want your best friend to tell the, the really ugly stories about your life. But you know, God knows you and me exactly as we are. There's nothing hidden to him. But our sin, as bad as it is, has, has never been a personal threat to God. As a matter of fact, in one respect, you could even say the, the, the really ugly stuff of our souls is part of the reason he comes in his mercy. Because he knows how bad we are. And, and how wrecked and ruined and distorted and twisted our lives have become because of our sin. In his great mercy, he moves toward us. And so that's where verse 24 becomes marvelous that the same people who would say, I I'm a sinner, I've fallen short of the glory of God. Well, those are the very ones that he invites to be justified by grace. So he's not saying to you, hey, sinner, clean up your act. You need to do better than, than you are. You need to be holier, more righteous, you need to be nicer to people, and then we'll talk. No, he actually moves to us in our need, as it were, and says, come to me. Let me, uh, all of my grace, all of my mercy, let me justify you. That means to give you a legal standing 
Have you ever been to a court of law? I mean, you're just dead to rights, as it were. I mean, you, you were speeding on I-15, and you were doing 20 miles per hour over the speed limit, and, you know, the officer had you clocked on radar and, you know, multiple witnesses, and you just know you are not getting out of that ticket. But what if the, the, the courtroom suddenly takes a little different turn, and the judge says, you're guilty. You've fallen short of the state speed limit required, or the law. And you're like, Your Honor, I, I, I am guilty. But then he says to you, you know what? We're dismissing the case against you. And as a matter of fact, we're clearing your record of all previous tickets. And you go out of that courtroom as a justified driver. Well, that is a, not a perfect analogy, but it helps us to understand the nature of what God did. When you actually deserved a sentence of guilt and condemnation in the heavenly courtroom, he actually comes and says, I'm gonna remove your guilt, and then I'm gonna actually, I'm actually gonna replace your sinful record with the perfect record of righteousness that my son Jesus Christ has. That's what it means to be justified. Well, that's liberating, isn't it? It doesn't change your past. It doesn't like suddenly make it all different, but God does treat you as if you had never sinned. It's a powerful thought, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You can only do that because Jesus died. So as we continue reading through Romans, then we would come to chapter 10. And again, Paul says in verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that remarkable? You think of all the things in, in life where there's a, there's a certain requirement before you can enter a group, whether it be uh, a club or even entrance into college. Some of you are at that stage or have just gone through that, and, and you've got to meet certain requirements to, to gain entrance there, or perhaps you've got to pay a certain amount before uh, you know, your, your membership dues are up to date so that you can remain a member or be a member of the club. There are all kinds of groups and organizations and such where you have to meet requirements to enter. But do you know what the requirement to enter this remarkable salvation is? That you simply call on the name of the Lord. That is that you say, oh God, I, I'm sinful. I need you. Will you save me? Will you please forgive my sins? You see, that's what calling includes. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a remarkable blessing. So those are some, just a few of the selected thoughts out of those first 11 chapters of the book of Romans that, that have been laying some groundwork where Paul is now going to speak of our spiritual identity. And, and that spiritual identity is not connected to our ethnic background or identity, whether Jew or Greek, as I mentioned uh, through the scriptures just a moment ago. Our spiritual identity is not created by our participation in ordinances or rituals like circumcision. That would have been a Jewish ritual that some were actually saying you can't be saved unless you've been circumcised. And Paul says no. It'd be like saying you can't be saved unless you've been baptized. You can't be saved unless you've given the church enough money. You can't come into this relationship with God unless you've you know, met these requirements. No, it's your identity as a child of God, is actually a condition of the heart. And through the new birth, God creates new people. And in one sense, he creates his own ethnic community. 
the people of, of God. Now, as a central point of our identity, Paul describes us as members of Christ's body. And this brings us to our, our passage today. As we are studying some of these one another passages, love one another, what does that love look like? One of the things that the Lord does for us through an apostle like Paul is to, is to teach us and, and remind us that we are actually members of his body. Members of his body. And we express our love for one another in some very specific ways. So let's take a closer look at what Romans 12, 3 through 6, teaches us in this regard. First of all, I want you to know from verse 3, we're humble members. Humble. He says, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Thinking of yourself highly is a different way, a synonym perhaps just of saying, you know, don't, don't be full of yourself. Don't be proud in your thinking. That word means to consider oneself as very important. It stands in contrast to Romans 12, 16, which I know we didn't read that far, but your, your Bibles are open to that page or your screen uh, is glowing with these words. So just scan down a little further. Do not be haughty or high-minded, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. There are many examples we could draw from. Um, the athletic world, you know, another number of playoff series that are underway, Kentucky Derby yesterday, you know, people competing for a prize. It's just interesting to me to watch athletes function. I mean, even with our, our kids, the high school soccer playoffs are underway, and our, our boys' team lost a tough one yesterday. But there are players on, on every field or court who just seem to have this overinflated sense of self-importance, don't they? And at the end of the day, you want to just say to them, all you did was put a ball in a basket or in the back of the net, or a puck in the net, or, or whatever it is. It's not that big of a deal. And we celebrate, and sometimes we strut around as if, well, as my father-in-law would say, as if we just came up with a cure for cancer. You know, that would be a really glorious moment to celebrate. Athle athletics needs to be kept in its proper perspective, doesn't it? But you know, when you can pack a stadium with thousands of people, and they actually cheer you for putting a ball through the hoop or in the back of the net, you can start to think that you're really hot stuff, can't you? Well, it's not limited to athletics. There are many examples that we can draw from life. It's a musician who thinks that her music is indispensable to the world. It's the coworker who thinks that the entire company would shut down without them. Jerry Bridges writes in his book, Respectable Sins, and that's an intriguing title, isn't it? Because there are some sins we all agree, those are really bad, never do those. But then we also have categories where we're kind of like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Well, Jerry Bridges has written an entire book addressing those respectable sins. And obviously they aren't truly before the Lord respectable. But on this particular sin of pride, he writes, it's the person who has a feeling of moral superiority with respect to other people. Because we don't commit those sins, we tend to feel morally superior and look with a certain amount of disdain or contempt on those who do. What Paul is addressing here in the community of faith with respect to people who are the body of Christ is don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Another author writes, since the metaphor suggests intoxication, one might say they were in danger of becoming egoholics. 
I think there are a lot of people who are drunk with self. Think that the world centers on them, that the axis of the universe even runs through their backyard. I wonder if you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And maybe I should even be more specific and say, how do you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think? We all do it, don't we? We're inconvenienced by another family member or a friend and we feel that inner frustration grow to agitation and then it vents itself in an angry outburst. And we feel justified, don't we? Because you made me late again. Or you didn't do the thing I asked you to do. I mean, how hard can that be to remember to, to stop on your way home and get those things. And we feel that we should have been treated differently or handled differently. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Maybe you were depressed because you didn't get the promotion you thought you should have had. And so now you've been writing your resignation. Well, if they're going to treat me this way, I'll show them. They'll feel the loss after I go find another job. Careful. Paul is calling us to guard our hearts against a sense of self-importance. Now here's the other side of it. We're humble members, but we are valuable members. You say, valuable? Where do you get that? Well, look at the text with me and just think through this for a moment. Go back to verse 3. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. And and there's really where that uh, analogy of the, the... the terminology that might open the door to an intoxication of ego. Think with sober judgment. That is, think and act sensibly. You need to use sound judgment and even moderation with respect to yourself. Now, let's think about it, though, in context. Part of God's gracious work in us is that he calls us to a realistic assessment of who and what we are. Look at the end of verse 3. According to the measure of faith that God has assigned Let's pause right there. There's saving faith, and that comes from God. And some of you have been led to that point where you see yourself as a sinner, and you recognize that he's the only one that can save you. So there's saving faith that you exercise, believing in him, but that's not specifically what's in view in this particular verse. Rather, he's talking about a measure of faith that is God gives you the capacity to believe that you personally are gifted and empowered by God himself for particular kinds of service. And we're going to get to some of those in just a moment because he's given us a list of about seven things that are suggestive, the kinds of gifting uh, that he has assigned to the church. But look at that word assigned for just a moment and think about this. God has assigned to us a measure of faith. That is, he has assigned a particular responsibility, given each of us particular tasks that he intends for us uh, to do. You could think of a, a director. Some of you may have had experience, whether years ago in a little school play, I had opportunities coming through school to be in a number of productions. Some of you may actively be involved in community theater and, and such like that. And so if you've ever been a part of an acting group or company, you know that when you come to that first audition or even the, the roundtable reading of the script, that the director ultimately is the one who assigns the roles, right? And that may have been a source of disappointment for you, or some of you may have said, you know, I just kind of wandered into the room and in, somehow ended up in this production because the director thought I looked like the character that, you know, he or she had in mind, and I, I kind of talked either maybe with an accent or could, you know, play that role, but the director assigned. 
And when everybody actually takes their role, learns the lines, uh, hits the, the cues, stands in the proper place, fulfills the, the action that the director has envisioned, it actually becomes a great production. And I don't care if it's an elementary school production. Those kids can hardly do any wrong, right? When, <laughs> when parents and grandparents are present in the room. And every parent and grandparent thinks that their kid is exceptional. <laughs> oh, he's so advanced. <laughs> you know, there's a reason we have a word called average. And there's reason beyond that that the vast majority of us fit right into that category. So, so grandma, grandpa, go ahead and believe what you want about your child being above average, but time will show, probably not. But the director ultimately is the one who makes those assignments. And so God is painting a similar picture for us, that he in his perfect wisdom has looked at each of us and out of that wisdom and out of that kindness and love said, you know what? I want you to fulfill this role and you to fulfill this role and you and you and you. So everybody then, because of God's wisdom and God's grace, uh, is assigned this role, assigned a place, and when you begin to think about, I've got an assignment from God, doesn't that make you valuable? But if you create your own assignment, well, where's your value then? It's self-made, isn't it? And you risk losing it at some point if you can't fulfill what you think. But if you just submit yourself to God's wise, sovereign directorship, if you will, and you assume the role that he has called you to, you actually become a part of a very beautiful drama. And ultimately, it's the drama of redemption. The drama that's not just a a, a fictitious story, but it's real life that God himself is overseeing and moving through the course of history to the glory of Jesus Christ and the joy of the nations. It's quite a remarkable thought. Now when we get down to this section on the gifts, we'll talk a little bit more for a moment, but I want you to think for just a moment. There are two benefits that flow out of this assignment that God gives. The first, it guards us against pride that would divide us. And, and even that comparison one to another, it's kind of like, you know, if you have a problem with, with the role you've been assigned in a play, you might go to the director and say, hey, I'm just not comfortable. I really wanted such and such a role. And the director would have the right at the end of the day to say, but that's not where I want you. And so even in this sober self-assessment that Paul has called for, God is guarding us against a pride that would divide us. One author writes, this sober self-assessment that has just been called for has in view the rich diversity of the expressions of faith and grace. By recognizing that each is graced in some measure by God, I would add, and each expression is indispensable to the community of faith, a false sense of superiority will be effectively avoided. And this is how God helps us to battle that. You know, it's easy in a context like this to, to say, well, the people who are kind of upfront and visible, they're, they're the ones in the prime spots. We're thankful for Kevin, aren't we? I mean, he's a very gifted worship leader. Thankful for the ladies who've been singing. Thankful for others who in time will have an opportunity to join. But don't think that there's somehow, you know, the, well, those are the really spiritual people. No, aren't we thankful for those who are, who are just working on the grounds and manicuring? I, I drove up this morning, I'm like, grass is cut again thank you I don't even know who was on this week 
But that, that is a work of service. Thanks to those who clean. Thanks to those who organize. Thanks to those who've come alongside Dan Kaminsky as he's trying to get our children's ministry really coordinated and, and moving. It, it just takes all of us. So there's not a hierarchy of the really important uh, members of this church and then kind of the others. No, Let, let's go back to the analogy of, of the body and think that through for a moment. Well, before we do that though, let me, let me get to the second benefit. It actually encourages us to participate. Now some of you may say, and this is a legitimate thought or, or questions, like I, I'm not sure how I'm gifted of God. Well, we can figure that out together. Can I just give a real practical starting point? Just jump in when a need is present. Whether it be a formal need that's announced, hey, we got a sign-up list on the back table and we need people to bring or come or do, you start serving there. Or maybe you'll actually see a need. And it's not even formally announced, but you just become aware. Maybe somebody shares something with you, uh, just passing comment even. You become aware of a need and you say, you know what, I could actually make a meal for that family this week. And you do it and you drop it off. And, and it's a special encouragement to them. And you start sensing those needs and, and just being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, how he, how he impresses your heart that you ought to act on those needs. Well, maybe he's actually revealing to you you have a gift of mercy. Maybe you have a gift of exhortation. And you see some things that just need to be adjusted a little bit. And so exhortation can sometimes look like, hey, you know what? Gideon, I want to encourage you. You need to actually stay in school a little longer and work in, in this field of study. And Gideon's sitting there going, you know what? I've kind of had some thoughts along those lines, but nobody's ever said that to me before. And because of that word of exhortation, you know, the path of Gideon's life is, is redirected. Maybe you're a person with a gift of service. And you love when sign-up lists go on the back table because you love to come and pull the mower out of the, out of the garage in the back and, and just go to work in that. We're going to see in just a moment there are a variety of gifts, but I just wanted to suggest that you just begin to serve where you see the need. And sometimes you'll get in with a good heart and try to do something and realize, I am not gifted in that capacity because <laughs> you just made a royal mess. And it's okay to make messes as long as they're not like big, ugly, sinful messes, right? We want to avoid those. No, God has enough grace for all of our messes. So this encourages us to participate because God himself has made an assignment. Now here's the third big thought for us this morning. We're a united body, united members. So now we get back to the analogy of the body. Look at verse five. One body, members one of another. Those are phrases that are powerful for us. And you can't think of membership as in a club. It's not that kind of membership. Even when we talk about church membership. It's easy to go that direction, but what I really want you to think about first and foremost is what the Lord sets before us, that we are actually members of his body. And so this metaphor of a physical body becomes powerful for us. I, I did just a little bit of quick reference and study this week as, uh, as to the human body, and I just marvel again at how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Four different types of tissue that you are carrying into this room this morning connective, muscle, epithelial. Can anybody define that word? Some of you are gonna have it on a test here in the next week or two, probably. Nervous tissue, 
all marvelously fashioned by God and brought together that, that you might live and experience him. Ten different systems in the human body. Look at those. And, and each of those systems marvelously fashioned. In his wisdom, he's brought all of these systems and 78 different organs within you. Friday, my oldest sister had surgery to remove a diseased parathyroid gland. I'm sure I studied that in biology years ago, but until my brother-in-law called and said, hey, can you pray for your sister? Got a little procedure. Doctors think that it's going to be okay, but then he starts describing it. I'm like, parathyroid? I had to look that up. You have four of them. Typically, they're the size of a grain of rice, I think. And she had one that was swollen, and the surgery went, went well, and her blood work began to correct itself almost immediately. So we're very hopeful that, that she'll have a full recovery. But I was just thinking, you know, just one of those things gets a little off, your whole body's impacted. Well, it's the same in the body of Christ. We're members one of another. All are necessary. There's no vestigial members in the congregation uh, of Jesus Christ. You know, for years we've just thought the appendix is no big deal, take it out, keep it. You know, it's just kind of an extra thing there. I'm not persuaded that it's just like a non-functioning thing. Maybe the Lord will have a special biology lesson for us when we get to heaven one day. But I can tell you this, in his body, there are no unnecessary members. And he's actually united us and made us members one of another. This will make some of you feel really awkward, okay? But we're gonna do this again. Can you turn and just look at the person next to you? And as you do, I just want you to think in terms of they are valuable, actually invaluable. We need one another. And we need to view our church family in the same way that we view a body, our bodies, not as a collection of interesting and separate parts, but as one body comprised of wonderful, necessary, and interrelated parts. One author writes, the diversity enriches each member because they have communion in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit which God has dispensed according to his own will. The assignments come from him. The design is his, bringing diverse people together, making them members one of another. So each of us is united to the others. Each of us has a gift or gifts that are essential for one another and each of us is dependent upon others for our own spiritual growth and survival. This is the design of Christ. Church is not an event. Church is not a schedule of opportunities that is published once a month. Jesus speaks to us in terms of a community, of a body, of personal relationships. We are members one of another. And that's part of what makes our Sunday morning assembly so special. It's kind of like we've been scattered all week long. This is the one morning of the week where we're all gonna clear our calendars and do our best to be here so we can actually be one. We can be whole. And so we sing together and we pray together and, and we open the scriptures together and we listen to it preached and taught and we think about it and we give an offering together. I mean, it's just, here we are, we're one. Now, we may scatter in different directions in the course of the week, but we still need to live lives with, with that thought. We're still one, spread all over the valley. 
some going to work, some going to school, some tending uh, the, the home fires, all kinds of things that will occupy our time, but we need to be thinking continually. We're one, we're one, we're one. So we worship together, we pray together, we do outreach together. This fall, Lord willing, we'll launch community groups, which will be another middle of the week. We'll probably let each group decide what night of the week uh, suits them best, but building those relationships, just digging deeper into one another's lives, trying to love and encourage and strengthen and bless one another because we're members one of another. Now finally, in this passage, when Paul writes, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, he, he's reminding us very specifically we are gifted members. And this ties right back to that term valuable. Look at the text again with me. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now that little term gift uh, is, is a really special one. You've probably heard the term charismatic at some point. That may be unfamiliar to some of you. Uh, it's often associated with a group of, of professing believers, m- most of whom are genuinely, uh, the vast majority, are, are genuinely born again, seeking to serve God, love Him, grow in their faith. Uh, they express their faith a little differently maybe than, than we would here. And, and one of the components of the charismatic uh, movement is that they would believe that all of the spiritual gifts uh, are for today. And so if you went to their church services, uh, a lot of times it would include speaking in tongues, and um, they, would, they would set aside a time even in services for uh, healing and, and things like that. And I have some dear friends um, who, who are there, and I love them and esteem them highly and have learned much from them. So that term charismatic, though, comes right out of texts like these. It's a Bible term. And Paul is talking about the gifts or the charismata of God's grace. And that's a beautiful picture, that the gifts are not anything that you earn. They just flow out of his kindness and generosity. Now there are seven that Paul mentions in this particular passage. These undeserved benefits, if you will, that come from the Holy Spirit. No single person possesses the full set, and even these seven are not comprehensive. There are actually several lists in the New Testament that are suggestive. One of the longer lists is over in 1 Corinthians 12, and you could look at that Uh, on your own and read through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So everybody's gifted by God's grace, his kindness. And look at what Paul says, though. Being gifted as we are, the grace given to us, let us use them. So a variety of gifts, differing gifts, but given for the purpose of using them. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul says uh, to the the church at Corinth, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, and he's been talking about these charismatic gifts, the the Spirit, for the common good. So you didn't get a gift of God just to kind of keep it to yourself, exercise it for your own joy and benefit. No, you're given it to bring benefit to other people. The apostle Peter wrote in his first letter to the early church, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So this passage is just opening a wonderful world of thinking for us. We're united to one another. We're members one of another. We've each received an assignment of faith by the all-wise, all-powerful God. We've been gifted by Him in order that we might serve and bless one another. I mean, it's a remarkable picture that's developing. The commentator and author John Murray writes of this passage, if we consider ourselves to possess gifts we do not have, then we have, inf- then we have an inflated notion of our place and function. That's thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. 
And we sin by esteeming ourselves beyond what we are. But if we underestimate, then we are refusing to acknowledge God's grace and we fail to exercise that which God has dispensed for our own sanctification and that of others. So we are humble in our thinking. We are also reasonable in our thinking because God has assigned and and given us value. And here, at this point, we recognize that we are gifted. And if you say, I'm not really sure how I'm gifted, then just jump in and serve. Because God's going to reveal that to you. And you know, it is a sweet thing when you find that particular area of life and service that you know you're gifted and, and empowered by the Spirit of God for. You're just in your sweet spot. And what's beautiful to me as I look over this assembly is that's going to look very different person to person. But when all of us are serving and living right in that sweet spot, this body actually is a beautiful representation of Jesus himself because we are the body of Christ. So let's just think it through here in conclusion. First of all, a very basic question, have you called upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Because if you actually haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ yet at this point, then you haven't received the, the kind of grace that he's talking about here. It's ready, it's prepared for you. Remember what Paul said in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you're not gonna be shut out, but you do have to take that first step. Have you called upon the name of the Lord to be saved? You know, you can do that right now. You don't have to attend a special class in this church. You don't have to set up a meeting with one of the pastors or, or some really you know, spiritual authority figure. You could do it right now. Just quietly, silently, from your heart to God. Lord, save me. Have you called upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Number two, has God convicted your heart this morning of thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think? And you know if he has, you need to confess it. Maybe you already did. Maybe as we were working through that particular section, your heart just felt that weight of the Holy Spirit's conviction settle right on you and you're like, oh Lord, this week, you know, when I said or when I got in that argument with my spouse or, you know, when my brother did and then I was, confess it. Say, Lord, I think more highly of myself than I ought to think. Please forgive me. He will. He always does. Number three, how do you think God has gifted you for the benefit of this body of believers? And whether that's crystal clear to you or not, maybe we should press it beyond that. A fourth question, in what ways can you use your gifts? or In what ways can you just serve? From sign-up lists, fairly ordinary things, some of the bigger ministry initiatives, opportunities abound. But God's calling you to serve. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. Where are you in relationship to God right now? Are you a believer? Put your faith in him. If you answer no, then do that right now. Call upon his name. Receive his forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. Maybe you're wrestling with God saying, I hear you. I think more highly of myself than I ought to think. But I don't want to give up self kind of like the life I have, kind of like the way I've been living. 
Oh, dear friend, don't live for yourself. Don't continue in that self-centered selfishness. Submit your heart to him. Maybe you're saying, I know I'm saved. And I do believe that I've submitted my heart to the Lord Jesus fully. I'm just not sure where to begin serving. Tell him that. And then just ask him to reveal that to you and lead you. He'll do it. Just be willing to follow. Take the next step. Father, there's so many things in this passage for us today and so many points of application. Our minds, in many ways, are just spinning right now. But we ask that by your spirit and by your word, you would help us to bring every thought into captivity. That we might understand your will and submit ourselves to it and do it with joy. And oh, how I ask that you would grow this body of believers. Grow us in love one for another. Grow us in influence here in this community, in our schools, our workplaces, the neighborhoods where we live. And please, Lord God, make our witness, not just in word, but make the witness of our lives powerful so that hundreds and even thousands over the course of the years to come may be brought to know Jesus. That's our desire. That's our prayer. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Before we close, I just want to share one last little illustration with you, and this is neat to me. You know, to be a Christian is to be an active part of a a very big family. And God's calling us to love a family. And there's a a neat testimony from a third century theologian named Tertullian. If you read church history, you'll, you'll, it's quite an impressive picture, isn't it? Um, But you'll, you'll inevitably run across his name because God used him in a powerful way. But before he came to Christ, God was using ordinary believers around him, most of whom never wrote one thing that the church uh, has kept on file or stored in a theological library somewhere. But Tertullian is actually one of the church fathers. Listen to what he says about the compelling witness of the believers that he encountered before he came to Christ. He wrote that the one thing that converted him to Christianity was not the arguments they gave him, because he could find a counterpoint for every argument they would present. But they demonstrated something I didn't have. The thing that converted me to Christianity was the way they loved each other. That may be the most compelling part of our witness. We should speak the truth. We should present the gospel arguments. But we must love one another. And that's something that the world can't quite duplicate. So our love for one another is the call and command of Christ.